I want to invite you to open your Bible this morning to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week there in Luke 4, 14. And this is the ministry and life of Jesus. Uh, this is Jesus now having um, been baptized and the heavens opened. A voice was heard from the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended like a dove upon Jesus. He, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And as he was filled with the Spirit, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where there for 40 days he fasted, he depended upon God, he prayed, he waited upon the Father. And there he was tempted by the enemy during those 40 days. And last week, we learned through the beginning of chapter 4 that Jesus teaches us how to overcome temptation by the power of the Word. It's the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word working together to help us overcome temptation. We learned that the Word of God conquers the enemy, but also know this, the Word convicts sinners. Just like the word conquers the enemy, the word also convicts sinners. What is the purpose of the word of God? To conquer the enemy, to give us victory over the enemy. But the purpose of the word of God is also to convict us of our sin and to draw us closer to Jesus. So the same word that conquers the enemy is the same word that convicts the sinner. In fact, we tell the message this morning, the word that convicts the sinner. And I want you to stand with me on your feet today as we begin reading Luke chapter 4. We'll read from verses 1 or from verse 14, I'm sorry, to verse 19. I'll read the even verse and you read the odd verses out loud together. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out throughout the surrounding region. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recover of sight to the blind, to set liberty to those who are oppressed. Then he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that today you show us how much you love us. You show us through your word and the truth that convicts us that you have enough grace to forgive us, that there is enough grace to deliver us. And so today, would you open our hearts and minds as if this message was just for us because it is. And so we pray this all in Jesus' name. Together we said, 
Amen. You may be seated. We're going to learn three things here through the text that is before us. In Luke chapter 4, the first is his recognition, the recognition of Jesus, then his revelation, and then finally his rejection. His recognition, his revelation, and his rejection. And there in beginning in verse 14, we see his recognition that Jesus returns from the Jordan to the Galilee. We first notice here the place. And I want you to write this maybe in your notes, in your Bible. He's returning in the power of the Spirit. And the Bible here tells us in chapter 4 of Luke that verse 1, he was filled by the Spirit. Verse 1, also he was led by the Spirit. And now in verse 14, he's empowered by the Spirit. This is the Spirit's work in the life of Jesus. He was filled he was led, and he was empowered. And he's returning from a place of seeking God. He's returning from a place of fasting, from a place of test, from a place of temptation to Galilee. That is the place, Galilee. Galilee is the place where most of his ministry took place. But not only does Luke tell us the place, he also tells us the power. The place is Galilee, the power is the Holy Spirit's power. And so in verse 14, it says he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And notice here, he, he was filled, he was operating by the Holy Spirit's power. This is the kind of power that we need to live a life that pleases God. This is the power that we need in order to live a life of obedience. And so Jesus is returning. And I want you to pay attention to the word in verse 14, return. Because he was there for 40 days seeking the Father's voice. He was there for 40 days dependent upon the Father. And he returns from a place of seeking God. He returns from a place of being tested. He returns from a place of temptation, strong in the Spirit. This should be our desire as well, that when we seek the Lord, when we open our Bible, when we go into seasons of waiting or of testing, even temptation, that we would return from those times strong in the Spirit. Now, I want you to know something. If you obey God, you will come out of that place more powerful and more effective than you were before. If you obey God, even in temptation, through the test, Relying on the Spirit, as you wait on God, you will return, you will come out of that more powerful and more effective than you were before. Now we know that Jesus is already filled with the Spirit. But here in verse 14, Luke reminds us that he continued to walk in the power of the Spirit. After experiencing victory over temptation and the devil, he relies on the Holy Spirit's power. Now, why do we mention this in verse 14 as a place of importance for us is because if Jesus relied on the Spirit's power, then so do we. We need to rely on the Spirit's power. If Jesus relied on the Spirit's power to continue to walk in obedience before the Father, we should too say, Lord, by your Spirit, would you strengthen me? Lord, today, by your Spirit, as I continue, as I return, as I go back to work, as I go back home, 
As I go back to my children or, or to my marriage, would you strengthen me? Would you comfort me by your Spirit? Lord, would you guide me by your Spirit? Would you give me revelation by your Spirit? Give me wisdom by your Spirit. Lord, would you produce the fruit of the Spirit in my life? What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience. Lord, would you make me more like your Son by your Spirit? Make me more like Jesus. Did you know that that is the priority in the Spirit's work in our lives? The priority of the Spirit in our lives is that He would witness to us of Jesus. That the Spirit is given to us to point us to Jesus. The Spirit is given to us to conform us or to transform us to make us more like Christ. So if Jesus Himself depended on the Spirit, so should we. That the place is Galilee. The power is the power of the Holy Spirit. But notice in verse 14, the popularity of Jesus. Because it says that news went out throughout the all surrounding regions of him. The people were hearing regarding what he taught. They were learning about the miracles that he did. And people started to realize that, that Jesus was there from all places. It spread very quickly regarding the message and ministry of Christ. The place is Galilee, the power is the spirit, the popularity is the surrounding regions there. But notice the priority we see in verse 15 when we think about his recognition. And the priority is that he taught in the synagogues being glorified by all. And I want you to circle the word in your Bible taught because that was the ministry of Jesus. The priority of Jesus was that he would teach, that he would give revelation, that he would give instruction from the word of God. But he would go to the synagogue. Just think about this, Jesus going from place to place and he went to the synagogue where people would gather, where they would congregate, where they were assembled together. And the synagogue was different than the temple because the temple, they would sacrifice at the temple. But the synagogue was known as a house of instruction. This is where the people gathered together for the purpose of the reading of the word of God. And then they would have someone explain to them what they heard. So Jesus would go to the synagogue, the house of instruction, where people would gather together, as was his priority he read the word of God and then he explained to them the meaning, causing the people to understand the truth that was hidden from them before. They did not understand those truths. So Jesus opened up the scriptures, the law, the prophets, the Old Testament, and he explained to them how the prophets pointed to him. And notice what happens here. And, pray, and he was praised by everyone or being glorified by all. What does this mean? That he had a powerful teaching ministry. It was the power of the Holy Spirit working through the teaching ministry of Jesus. It was the Spirit's power working through the power of the Word of God while Jesus was teaching it. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, Matthew reminds us regarding the teaching ministry of Jesus. And he says this, And Jesus went about all Galilee, First of all, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, 
and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. So Jesus was teaching, he was preaching, and he was also healing. But teaching was the priority of his ministry, pointing people to the word of God so that they would understand the truth about him. In Matthew 7, 29, notice what we find regarding Jesus there. For he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. How did the scribes teach? They, they spoke of someone else. But Jesus, when he taught the word of God, he spoke of himself. So he spoke with authority. He spoke with, with boldness. He spoke with firmness. And so this is the priority of Jesus when we think about the recognition of his ministry. But notice here the revelation in verse 16. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Now Jesus is going from the Galilee to Nazareth. He has one thing in mind is the proclamation of the word. So he goes to Nazareth, a place where he was raised. If you notice there in verse 16, it says that he was brought up there. This was his hometown. And everybody recognized Jesus in Nazareth. They knew Jesus' mother, Mary. They knew about Joseph. They maybe even had interactions with Jesus as he grew up in his childhood. He probably did work for them as a carpenter, as a builder. So they knew who Jesus was. And Jesus goes back to his hometown and notice what he does here. It says, and as his custom was. This is important for us as Bible students. As you know, the life of Christ, that you would pay attention to this because this is a place where we know where his commitment was. This was his custom. This was his regular commitment. That he went as his custom was into their synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus had a commitment. Jesus had a custom uh, to be at the synagogue or where we would know it today as the church, the congregation, the gathering, the assembly, every weekend for the worship and the word of God. This was the custom of Jesus. It was his custom to attend public worship. Now, the reason why we look at this is because if this was the custom and commitment of Jesus on every weekend, to go to the synagogue, to assemble with the believers or the people of God to hear the word of God, it should also be our custom and commitment as his followers to imitate this. That we would say every weekend, every Sabbath, as it would there uh, tell us, on every occasion that we would say, well, we need to go to the house of instruction. We need to assemble with believers to be fed, to hear the word of God, to be in fellowship and, and regularly attend church. There are oftentimes we say, well, you know, I'll go to church once a month. Or you know what, I'll go twice a month. But he was seeking the fellowship of worship together. And he was seeking the faithful people of God. How many times do we say, you know what, I don't need to go to church to worship God. I can worship God from the game. Or I can worship God from the beach. And it's so true, you can. But I've never met anyone who has grown in the relationship with Jesus Christ who doesn't go to church. It takes the fellowship 
of believers to encourage one another as we come together to the house of instruction and are fed the word of God and we can apply it in our lives. If you say, I don't need church, I want to tell you this morning, yes, you do. <laughs> we need to assemble together as believers. We need to be in the house of God. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, Paul says this, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Now, what are we to do? Stir up love, stir up good works, not forsaking, neglecting the assembling of ourselves together as it is the manner of some. There are some that will neglect, that will forsake the assembling, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. So as we see the day approaching of the return of Christ for his church, even more so, do you notice that? That's what here Paul tells the church in Hebrews chapter 10. Even more so, let us consider one another. Let us come to church. Let us assemble. Let us stir each other to love. Let us stir each other to good works. And this is the example we find in Jesus. But notice in verse 16, it says that we, when he arrived there, as was his custom, when he arrived there, as was his commitment, he stood up to read. During that time, if there was a traveling rabbi or a teacher, and he came into town, they would give him the opportunity to teach. And so Jesus stands up to read out of respect and reverence for the Word of God. During that time, when the rabbis would teach, uh, they would read standing and then they would sit down to teach the entire explanation or exposition of God's word. And so they would sit while they would teach and the people would stand the entire time. Just think about it today. I I'd be the one sitting and you'd all be the one standing. And so that's how it would happen in the synagogue all that time. The usual order was that they would begin with opening prayer, then they would go to uh, praise and then there was a reading of the law, then there was a reading of the prophets, and then after it was given an exposition or an explanation of what was read and how that connected to the theme that day. And so Jesus stood up, ready to read and then to explain regarding God's word. And in verse 17, it tells us, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written. This is amazing. This is exactly what we do when we come to church. We receive the book, and notice what we do, all of us, we open the book. If you come to church and no one ever tells you to open the book, then you're in the wrong church. When you come to church and they say, turn in your Bibles to, you found the right church. They open the book there. That's exactly what Jesus did. And they opened to the place of Isaiah, the prophet. Specifically, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And the Jewish rabbis had interpreted that this passage referred to the coming Messiah. That They knew that as they taught, as they read Isaiah 61, this speaks of the coming Messiah. This speaks of the ministry of the coming Messiah. And not only did they teach it that way, but everyone in the synagogue knew that. They knew that Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 had messianic intent, that it was speaking of the coming Messiah. So what this prophecy does from verses 18 to verse 19, 
It refers to Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. But this announces that the coming Messiah would come to heal. I know that all of us here need healing from Jesus. Amen? We all need the healing that comes from Jesus. We all need the healing that comes from the Messiah. But he came to heal the fivefold damage that sin brings. What type of healing did Jesus come to bring? Yes, physical healing through miracles and signs. But more so than physical healings through wonders and miracles and signs, he came to heal the fivefold damage that sin brings. The damage that sin brings on the soul, on the heart, in the mind, in the will of man. You see, sin does a great damage. So there must be a great work of redemption. And thank God we have a great Savior whose name is Jesus. That is who we have today. So the theme of this prophecy is salvation. Just like the theme of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the entire theme of the Bible is salvation. That's what, from Genesis, every book through Revelation, it speaks of redemption, that Jesus paid the price for your sins because we are guilty before God and our sin separates us from him. So as we read these two verses, knowing this prophecy brings forth so much love that flows from here, from God's heart to you. This is all about God's grace. This is all about the love of God. This is about how much he cares for you. I think so many times we come to church and we don't hear it enough, but I want to tell you this morning, God loves you. And God has a plan for your life. And that's why he sent his son, Jesus. So all of these verses, 18 and 19, specifically this prophecy is an expression of God's love for you. This is written specifically to you. Notice how he reads this prophetic word. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Jesus is reading this prophecy regarding the Messiah, referring to the anointed one, referring to the Christ. And he's claiming to be that royal figure with the mission of this prophecy. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He, he's saying, this is speaking of me. And so he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. You see, the word to anoint means to rub on or to apply oil or ointment. In the Old Testament, the priests were anointed and empowered uh, for special service to the Lord. So when a priest was given a responsibility and calling regarding the priesthood, they would anoint him with oil as a sign of the Holy Spirit empowering that person for the special service of the Lord. Literal oil was applied to them as a sign of the Holy Spirit in their life, but it only represented the inward work of the Holy Spirit in the life of that individual as they were separated for special service. So when we say the Lord's anointed us, it's us realizing that God in his spirit has now poured out his Holy Spirit on us for the special work that he has assigned us. 
You know what's awesome is that when you could serve the Lord with the Holy Spirit, it's not just the gift. It's not just the talent. You know what it does, the anointing of the Holy Spirit? It ministers to people. It touches the lives of people. Just like the priests, they're separated, anointed of the Spirit for a special work or for a special service to the Lord. And this was an outward representation of the inward work of the Spirit in that vessel or in that person. So he says this, this is the work of the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has separated me for a special work by the Spirit. Number one, to preach the gospel to the poor. Who did Jesus come to? He, he came, yes, to the poor physically. He came to the poor, yes, those that were needed physically, and he provided for their needs in many occasions in the gospels. But more so, Jesus came to bring the good news. That's the gospel. He came to bring the good news to the poor, the needy, or to the poor spiritually. You see, you have to remember that he came to heal the damage that sin brings. So the Messiah came, Jesus came, he was anointed to preach the good news to those that were poor spiritually because of sin, those that were lost because of sin, those that were restless because of sin, those that were starved and without resources because of sin. Did you know that's exactly how sin leaves us? Sin leaves us poor. And the Messiah came to bring good news to bankrupt sinners, those who realize their need of him. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? To realize that you need Jesus. Jesus came to preach the good news to those who realize that without him, they are bankrupt spiritually. Jesus came to heal the damage that sin had done in our souls and that we would realize that in and of ourselves, we don't have enough to save us. That we need to realize that we need Jesus. So he came to heal those that were poor spiritually. But here you also see that he also came and he was sent to heal the brokenhearted. Isn't this comforting when you realize that Jesus was sent? He was sent from the Father to you. He was sent because sin makes us poor spiritually. But he was also sent because sin breaks hearts. We all know as we walk the way in this world that, that sin has broken many hearts, including many of our hearts. And the Messiah is bringing the good news here through the prophet Isaiah as Jesus is reading it in the synagogue that he would bring good news to the brokenhearted, that he would bring good news to those that were rejected, that he would mend the hearts of those whose hearts were broken, that he would repair the damage of what sin had done to them. Now, I want you to know something today as he would read here that Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted, that it is only God that can heal broken hearts. No man can do that. No man has the ability to heal a broken heart. But we can point you to the one who can. His name is Jesus. He can heal broken hearts. 
You know, it's been said before, if you preach to broken hearts, you'll never lack an audience. <laughs> and it's so true. We tell our staff and our leaders, our servants here, we, we're just broken people serving broken people. Why? Because we all realize that we need Jesus to repair our hearts because of what sin has done and the damage that it's produced in our souls. Hearts everywhere are broken. Hearts everywhere, even right now, maybe you sitting there in the pew, your heart is broken, your heart is bleeding. But know this, Jesus came to heal broken hearts. And so many times people think, you know what, I can repair the damage of my heart with alcohol, that can heal my heart. No, it can't. I can repair the damage and the hurt and the pain in my heart uh, through success or through career or through money. None of that can heal your heart. Maybe you're sitting there right now and you would say, well, if, if I just had a relationship, that relationship can heal the brokenness of my heart that sin has done. That will not happen. Only Jesus can heal your heart because he's the one that created it. He's the one that can heal your heart. So in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus gives an invitation. He says, come to me. Don't go to substitutes. Don't, don't go to other places. Don't go to other things. Come to me. You're tired. You're brokenhearted. You're fatigued. You're frustrated. You're afraid. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden and are burdened, and I will give you rest. The invitation is that you would go with your broken heart and with your broken self to Jesus and he would repair the damage that sin has done. But you need to come to him because our hearts need mending. Our hearts need repair. He's the great physician. He knows how to work on hearts. You know what the world tells you? You know what? Just follow your heart. That's the worst advice anyone can give you. It'll get you in trouble every time. Your emotions will lie to you. Your emotions will deceive you. But oftentimes, even having made the mistake of allowing that to take place, you know what can happen? We can take all those broken pieces and Jesus can make us whole again. That is what he does. And so here we see that Jesus came to the poor. Those who realize their need of him Jesus came to the brokenhearted, but Jesus also came to the prisoners. This is why he continues reading, he says, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Why? Because just like sin makes you poor, just like sin breaks your heart, sin also holds you captive. Sin also can enslave you. And so the Messiah would come to set you free. Freedom from the bondage of sin. Today, we also can experience that, that liberty that he comes to proclaim in our lives, to, to give us, to offer us, to proclaim liberty to those that are in bondage. You know what kind of freedom the Lord gives you? Freedom where only he can set you free from addictions, where only he can set you free from vices, where only he can set you free from bitterness and jealousy and the past and hurt, and pride, and anger, and maybe sexual sin, and maybe secret sins. Jesus came to set us free. But do you know how he gives us that liberty where it says to proclaim liberty to the captives? 
Liberty here means forgiveness. Our forgiveness sets us free. Why? Because it's only forgiveness that sets a prisoner free. If you're now in captivity or in bondage or struggling with any type of sin in life, and you would find yourself consistently going back to it, the only thing that sets you free from that is knowing that Christ has already forgiven you. No amount of self-will can give you freedom. No kind of 12-step program can set you free. It's one step. Believe in Jesus Christ. He has forgiven you, and He will set you free. In Ephesians 1, verse 7, Paul tells the church of Ephesus, in Him, in Jesus, we have redemption. We have liberty. He's paid the price for our sins through His blood. Notice, through His blood. This is how we experience liberty. His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. How have you been set free from the bondage of sin? Through the forgiveness that comes from Jesus. Through Him paying the Christ for our sins with his blood, according to the riches of his grace. How is this possible? Because he loves you. How is this possible? Because he cares for you. How is this possible? Not because of your work, but because of his finished work at Calvary's cross. So Jesus has come to give you liberty, and that only comes through forgiveness. Today, if you want him to give you liberty, then ask him, Lord, forgive me. Notice also, as we continue reading, and recovery of sight to the blind. Jesus comes to the poor. He comes to the brokenhearted. He comes to the prisoners, but he also comes to the blind. Why? Because sin blinds us. And the Messiah came, yes, to heal those that were physically blind, but he also came to heal us of moral and spiritual blindness. He came to, to open up our eyes and to give us light. In sin, you don't understand spiritual things. While you're living a life of sin, you don't understand spiritual realities. You can't understand the Bible. You don't understand the values of the truth that come from Christ Jesus. You don't know who Jesus is. You can maybe take in the content right now. You can take in information. But if your eyes are not open, if, if he has not provided light, if you're not born again, then you will never have spiritual sights. What is the ministry of the Messiah? In Isaiah 42, 7, a different prophecy given regarding Christ. It would say that he came to open blind eyes, to bring prisoners or bring out prisoners from prison, to those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Did you know that before Christ, we sat in darkness? We walked in darkness. We lived a life of sin and darkness. In John 8, 12, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Because Jesus came to heal our moral and our spiritual blindness, we no longer have to walk in darkness. Now we can walk in the light. Paul told the church of Colossae, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, He delivered us from the power of darkness. We no longer are living in darkness. Darkness no longer has grip over our hearts and minds and lives. 
He's delivered us from darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son in his love in whom we have redemption. There's the word again, freedom, liberty, deliverance through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Today, you can know that Jesus can give you the light of life, that Jesus can open your eyes to spiritual truths, that Jesus can give you spiritual sight. And this becomes a part of our testimony that we are no longer living in darkness. We're living in light now because of Jesus. Do you remember in John chapter nine, the blind man that was healed that Jesus gave sight to? Jesus gave him sight and uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, they came as legalistic rulers and said, who was it that healed you? Just tell us now. And he said, I don't know who it was. So they went to his parents and said, would you tell us, is this your son? And, and how was it that he was healed? And they said, listen, that is our son. But how he was healed, we don't know. You, you have to ask him. He's of age. Why? They were afraid that they would get excommunicated from the assembly and congregation. So they bring back the man again that was blind and the Lord gave sight to. And they said, you know, tell us now plainly, who was it that gave you sight? And how was it that you received your sight again? And he gave this very testimony that oftentimes we've experienced. He said, listen, I don't know who it was. I don't know how it happened. All I know is one thing. I was blind and now I see. And that is the testimony that we have in Jesus. That is what he came to do, to bring us spiritual sight. There's so many people walking in darkness today. They have no spiritual sight. Well, Jesus came to bring the, take the blindfold off and that you would know that you're being deceived by the enemy and to give you the light through his word, through his spirit. But also notice what he also does to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Why? Because just like sin blinds you, sin also oppresses you. Would you notice that? It oppresses you. And liberty meant forgiveness, but now liberty means deliverance. The overwhelming, the overburdened, the pressures and pains of life, those that have anxieties, those that have fears, those that are distressed, those that are depressed, those that have lost all joy. Think about who Jesus came to heal, the oppressed. Maybe right now you're depressed or oppressed in discouragement in disease, in defeat, thinking you're defeated because of your past. I want you to know you're not in Jesus Christ. He came to heal those that are oppressed, to set them free. And how many of us know, as Jesus said in John 8, 36, therefore, if the Son of Man sets you free, you are free indeed. There is nothing that can hold you down. So he came to heal those that are, are oppressed. What does this mean? To deliver them. Jesus, when he came to deliver us, he didn't come only to, to preach deliverance. He didn't come to say, you know what? I, I brought deliverance. You know what he's saying here? I am your deliverance. That's who he is. He didn't come to bring it. He, he didn't come simply to preach it. He, he's saying, I am the deliverance that you need from oppression. So if you're dealing with fear and doubt, worry, anxiety, 
whatever it is that would oppress you right now in your soul, in mind, in heart, he has come to deliver you from oppression. In verse 19, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This is amazing. In fact, I would have you highlight, underline the acceptable year of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord was upon him because he anointed him, empowered him for special service. To heal the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to heal the prisoner, to heal the oppressed, to heal the blind, but also to proclaim, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. The acceptable year of the Lord was the time of the Lord's favor, was the time of the Lord's grace. It was a time period Grace has come. That is the acceptable year of the Lord. The, the grace of God has come through the person and through the work of Jesus. Now, the acceptable year of the Lord is important for us to look at because it refers to a concept in the Old Testament called the year of Jubilee. And you find it in Leviticus chapter 25. Every seventh year was known to be a sabbatical year for the nation of Israel. What did it mean that every seventh year, the year of Jubilee, slaves were set free, debts were canceled, the land rested from work, things were set to a new beginning or a new start. Just imagine living during that time, and it was a sabbatical year, we would not have to work for an entire year. <laughs> but thank God that we live in grace now because we can work. And it's not our work, but it's his work that saves us, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But Jesus here is applying this to his own ministry, the year of Jubilee, not on a political sense, not on an economical sense, but it was a spiritual year of Jubilee to the nation of Israel. What does this mean that this acceptable time or this acceptable year, this is the the whole dispensation of grace in which we live in right now. The acceptable year is the time period where God has offered grace and salvation through Jesus so that we can repent and we can be set free from the slavery of sin. Our debts can be canceled. We can rest as we come to Jesus and have a new beginning as we're born again in him. That is the year of Jubilee for the believer. So this is what we call the age of grace. We live in the age of grace right now. And the age of grace was inaugurated here. The age of grace will be fulfilled when Jesus raptures his church and then pours out judgment upon the world for those that rejected him. So Jesus is offering here total cancellation of spiritual debts. He's saying, I'm going to set you free. He, he's telling them, I'm going to give you a new beginning to those who respond to the message because I'm ushering in the acceptable year of the Lord. I, I, I am opening up a time of grace now so that you can repent and be forgiven. Now notice what happens there in verse 20. Then he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue, were fixed on him. Now, Jesus closed the book. He didn't continue reading the following phrase. 
If you read there in your Bible, in verse 19, there's a period where Jesus read the acceptable year of the Lord. Well, in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, there's a comma there. And the next phrase there in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2 is, the day of vengeance of our God. You see, the time of vengeance had not come, so Jesus didn't read that. But the time of vengeance may come soon. The time of judgment may come soon. Jesus, that day, put a period where Isaiah had put a 2,000-year comma. And right now, we live in that period of grace where Jesus is offering us an opportunity for us to respond to the message of his love. And so he puts a comma there, Isaiah. But Jesus put a period, and notice this, one day Jesus will come back and put a period on judgment. One day he will come back and put a period on vengeance. But right now he's made room for grace. Right now he's made room for forgiveness. Now is the acceptable year of the Lord. And so what does he do? He gives the book back to that attendant. He, he sat down, everyone's looking at him. How would he explain what he just read? And so in verse 21, he's, he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now I want you to circle today, this very day, the urgency, the imminency, the attention here, the scripture that we have just read has been fulfilled. It, it is completed. It is accomplished. It's referring to me. Jesus proclaimed the fulfillment of God's plan and promise in himself. You know what Jesus was doing? He was answering two questions. He was answering the question of, of who did Isaiah write about? Jesus says he wrote of me. He was answering the question, when, when is this going to come to pass? It's going to come pass to pass right now. Today. Right now. This has been fulfilled. Do you remember in Hebrews 3.15 where the apostle would say, today, right now, as the acceptable time, the year of the Lord is here for you today. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What does this mean? That you would not harden your hearts and reject the message of grace that God has given you if you're hearing him speak to you. You can be hearing him speak to you right now and harden your heart. You know what that's called? Rebellion. Right now, God is saying, I love you. I want to heal you of your broken heart, of your oppression, of your sin, of your blindness, and I want to give you deliverance of oppression. You know what we need to do? Open wide the door of our hearts. Say, Jesus, come in. And so what happened there in verse 22, it says, So all bore witness of him and marvel at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? They, they spoke well of him. They were amazed at his gracious words, the goodness that he spoke about, the preaching, the theme of grace, the, the goodness of, of the Father's love, the announcement of the ministry of the Messiah that was now available. It was now present. But then they said, how can this be? Isn't this Joseph's son? Well, they, they were wrong. He was not Joseph's son. He, he was the son of God. And what happens here is that they undervalue him because they knew him. How can this be? If that's Jesus, we know him. We know where he grew up. We know where he used to live. You know how often we take the truth for granted? 
when it's right in front of us? How often do you take Bible teaching for granted when it's set right before you? Do you remember the people in the nation of Israel? They took manna for granted. They complained about it. They were tired of it. They were ungrateful for it. How, how could it be him, grace? How could he be the fulfillment of God's promises and plan if we know who he is? You see, this was great preaching. This was Jesus himself, but the hearts were unmoved. They were unaffected. So in his recognition, his revelation, look at his rejection as well from the people. And he said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me. Some of you are skeptics right now. Some of your hearts are filled with unbelief. There may be even some right now that as you're hearing this, well, I don't really believe that. <laughs> I doubt that, or I used to believe that. Well, they were struggling with this. And some of you, he says, are going to tell me, prove yourself. Some of you, your hearts have become so hard at the idea of grace. Your hearts have become so hard knowing that I love you and I died for you and I have forgiveness for you. So you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Whatever you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown. Prove your claims by miraculous signs. They went from admiration to antagonism. And in verse 24, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Have you noticed that? He says, you're not going to value me. You won't believe me because of how familiar you are to me. See, the reason why they didn't believe in Jesus had nothing to do with who Jesus was, but it had to do with the condition of their hearts. They were against him because he reminded them regarding the hardness of their hearts and that the grace and the goodness and the love of God was to all people, even Gentiles. You know what the Bible says? That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us here is guilty, no matter the background, no matter the generation, no matter the nationality, we all are sinners in need of a Savior. And these people had boundaries in their hearts. They had predetermined legalism and limits set in their minds of who can be saved. And so Jesus explains to them, verse 25, but I tell you truly, many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, notice the days of Elijah and then the days of Elisha after, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land. Do you remember, he says, when the days of Elijah, there was famine and judgment from God. There were many widows in Israel during that time. But notice what he says, but to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. He says to a woman who you believe to be the lowest in your society, to a Gentile, which you believe to be an outcast, to a widow who you neglect, that is who Elijah was sent to bring grace to. To the one that was neglected, overlooked, and despised. That's who God brings grace to. Not to you with your prejudiced hearts that can't understand the grace of God. Open your eyes that His grace is for everyone. They needed to see this. In fact, he gave them another example. And many leopards... In Israel, in the time of Elisha, they, they respected Elijah and Elisha. And to none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Do you remember Naaman the Syrian? 
He was a Gentile leper. He was told to go to the Jordan and to dip in the Jordan seven times, and he obeyed in faith with humility. He surrendered himself to the word that he had received. So the Lord's message of grace was offensive to them. You know why grace is oftentimes offensive to us? Because of the pride in our hearts. Grace will always be offensive to the proud. God resists the proud, but what a beautiful promise. But he gives grace to who? The humble. And so what do they do there in verse 28? So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath, anger. The word filled means controlled. Think about the comparison. Jesus was filled, controlled by the Spirit. They were filled, controlled with anger, with resistance. We have to ask the Lord to show us our hearts today. And they rose up to thrust him out of the city. They wanted to push him out and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. What do they want to do? They were furious. They were angry. They were upset that he had denied the request of seeing a miracle. They were upset that Jesus told them there's something wrong in your heart. They were upset that the message of grace became so offensive to them. So they wanted to remove themselves under the condemnation of the truth. You know, oftentimes people say, you know, I... I I've heard the truth, but I don't want nothing to do with it. You know why? Because it convicts the sinner. And I want the Jesus about grace. I want all grace, just like they wanted. They love his gracious words in verse 22, but they didn't want to face the truth now that they needed him. And oftentimes we say, well, you know what? Give me all grace, but you can't have grace without knowing truth. In John chapter 1, verse 17, it says that in him... In Christ Jesus, there is grace and there is truth. That is the essence of who he is. How can you experience grace if you don't know the truth about sin? It's been said before, people love truth when it enlightens them, but they hate truth when it accuses them. Today, we need to receive all the truth that God has for us in his word, that he came to heal the brokenhearted, the poor, the oppressed, the blind, and those that need liberty. And so in verse 29 and 30, and he rose up to thrust them out, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Now notice, he came to die on the cross for our sins. But he was not going to die that day. Their power was in vain because his hour had not yet come. Jesus came sinless. He had done nothing wrong, and they wanted to kill him. They wanted to thrust him out. They want to push him away. Have you noticed that every time the truth comes and the Holy Spirit is pricking at your heart, you know what you want oftentimes? Thrust him out. I don't want to hear that. Don't talk to me about Jesus. I don't have time for that. But that's the truth that oftentimes is bringing the conviction in our hearts. And so in spite of the unbelief of these people in Nazareth, notice this, the scriptures declare that Jesus of Nazareth was the son of God, the Messiah, to fulfill the promises of God in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And the people who don't want him and who reject the acceptable year of the Lord, this, this time and dispensation age of grace, those who reject God during this time, notice, one day they'll have to face the day of vengeance. 
And so today you have an opportunity to say, Lord, would you, the year of Jubilee, the day acceptable of the Lord, would you set me free? Would you cancel my debt? Would you give me rest? And Lord, would you give me a new beginning? That is all found in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Can we pray?